Are you looking to take the next step in your leadership journey? The Small Giants Leadership Academy is now enrolling the next class. Launching October 2021, this one-year program brings emerging talent together to grow their skills as purpose-driven leaders. Academy graduate Tori Carter-Conine said, The Leadership Academy showed me practical ways to weave our values into our everyday work. Living our values led to a stronger culture, which led to more efficient and effective outcomes. For Katie Spica, these lessons carry over immediately into her working life. She shared, I hold a monthly training session that passes along what I'm learning to the rest of the group, from emotional intelligence to visioning and more. Personally, I'm growing so much from this program, and I'm being intentional about adopting the traits of an inspiring leader. Does this sound like the right pathway for you or a rising star on your team? Visit www.smallgiants.org to learn more. Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Drew Patrick, owner and CEO of Skidmore Studio, a creative studio based in Detroit that helps organizations grow through brand strategy and design. In the midst of the pandemic, he also founded Michigan Fields, an online specialty market that delivers the best of Michigan foods directly to homeowners. Drew is a passionate believer in purposeful business and has been a valued member of the Small Giants community for years. Welcome, Drew. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Well, it's so great to talk to you, and I've had the pleasure of getting to know you and your story a bit over the years. Uh, to me, it's really a story of passion, but also a story of resilience. And I want to jump right into how you got to be the owner of Skidmore. Didn't happen maybe the way you wanted or or you expected, but is truly a story in what it takes to take a situation, make the best out of it, build relationships from it. So tell us about how how you became the owner and the CEO of Skidmore. Definitely wasn't the way I had hoped it would happen. You're right on that. Um, I had been an employee at Skidmore for uh, eight or nine years, really the right hand of the owner. I was a small business owner before that. I was a partner in a material handling company. Uh, and then when I exited that, I came over to Skidmore a little later because uh, I had known the uh, soon-to-be owner personally uh, through a, a business owners group. And he asked me to come over and help him out at the studio. So I said yes, thinking I'd be there for a year or two, learn a little something about the creative world, and then move on to my next thing. And I am staying for eight or nine years as Tim, Tim Smith was his name, uh, as Tim's right hand, and really falling in love with the business that we were in. Uh, but at that point, eight or nine years in, I, I went to Tim and and said, you know, I really need to get back to doing my own thing. I really want to be, uh, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I want to be an owner, not a minority owner, but um, in charge. And he was a relatively young guy and he understood. And he said, I get it. Uh, I'll help you. Anything I can do. And we agreed that over the next year, I would transition out of the studio. And uh, we, we weren't really sharing that with the team yet. And then two months later, in January of uh, 2018, 
after he and I had a meeting in the studio talking about the, the annual plan that we were preparing for 2018 and things were going well and we were back on track after a rough year. You know, I, he went away from our meeting and two hours later, I got a phone call from his wife that there was a problem and she was at the hospital. And a couple of days later, he passed away really out of nowhere, totally unexpected. And, and it was just this, this huge tragic loss for obviously for his family, but for the studio, uh, for me personally, and, uh, our, our world was turned upside down. So at that point in time, I was not an owner of the studio. I was just uh, running the studio on behalf of Tim and then his family after he passed. And, you know, I went, met with his wife who I'd also known for, for many years, for 12, 13 years uh, before I was ever at the studio and her and I were quite close. And I said, uh, you know, this is, this place is special and it's yours now and it's yours to do with what you want. So I'm here to help you. And I, I didn't, you know, focus on the fact that I had told Tim that I was going to be leaving. <laughs> and uh, I really committed myself back to, I, I don't know what it looks like. Colleen is her name. I said, Colleen, I don't know what this looks like, but it, you know, take your time, figure out what you want to do, whatever it is, I'm here to help and I'll help transition it uh, into that next phase. And a couple months later, she came to me and said, you know, I, I know, I know it's early, but I know that I don't want to own this. And I've talked to uh, the rest of the family and, and we, we really just want to um, sell this entity and let somebody who's really passionate about the business lead it forward. She said, do you know of anyone who would be interested in having, you know, been at the helm for a couple of months and having a new perspective on the studio and really, you know, having an opportunity to lead this entity that didn't exist before because it was Tim's and he was 54 years old and he wasn't going anywhere. Uh, so that opportunity really never looked realistic to me. But, you know, when Colleen came to me, I said, yeah, it's me if you're open to it. And she said, well, I, I thought you didn't want to be an owner here. And uh, you know, we had that conversation where I said, I don't want to be the minority owner. <laughs> but if the whole thing is on the table, that's a different game. Uh, and ultimately, we came to agreement. And, and nine months later, uh, I purchased a studio from the family and I've been at the helm. So, uh, yeah, it was out of tragedy was born, you know, a path for me that I did not expect. But I am really you know, passionate about and you know, a chance to Skidmore is a 62 year old entity. It's been around for a long time. It's got this soul and it's part of the creative fabric of Detroit. Um, and I'm just really proud to be leading that entity now and to set it up for uh, sustainability. There's lots of companies that uh, would call themselves street creative studios or brand or agencies all that I, I look at you guys as something special sometimes hard to describe um, maybe until you visit uh, but you, you focus on a particular niche food and beverage mostly I believe and talk about a little bit about the, the size of the company today how many employees you have who you serve mm -hmm. And that's, this is something that we're, I would say we're in our fourth iteration of what Skidmore Studio is. And today we help guide emerging food and fun uh, consumer packaged good brands to growth through brand building and brand activation. So all of those things you talk about branding, both the foundational elements and the ongoing activation elements. That's what we help uh, our 
mostly food and bev, like you said, but other consumer packaged goods brands, you know, create and execute faithfully so that they can accomplish the, the goals that they're looking to accomplish. And that's a very different place than where Skidmore started. Skidmore started as an illustration shop back in 1959 and, you know, Mad Men advertising days. Mm -hmm. And they were the art department for some of the larger ad agencies around the country, just doing a lot of really beautiful and detailed and special illustration work, a lot in automotive. But as when we take people on the tour of our existing studio, we've got some artwork hanging on our history wall that's from uh, the launch of the Big Mac for McDonald's back in the 60s. And we did the artwork for that. So there's some food in our roots as well. But we've transitioned over time from an automotive illustration shop to now a studio that helps food and beverage brands grow through very narrow and expert strategy in that area. And the, there's some common threads, obviously, from the, the beginnings that really revolve around people and culture. And you know, our, our founder, Leo Skidmore, was really, I would say, a pioneer in the, uh, from what I've heard, never got the chance to meet him, unfortunately, but in the mindset of being purpose-driven. I think he was a small giant before small giants existed. Uh, he really created Skidmore so that the artists, the, the people who are doing the work, were treated as they should be with respect and well and had a healthy environment to do their work. And his experience in his career was that that didn't exist, that they were worker bees who were looked at as, you know, the hands of labor, that the account and sales and executive teams leveraged in order to make their lives healthy and and fulfilling. Uh, And he flipped that around and said, that's that I'm going to create a place where our creative talent is really the the heart and soul and that they can live their best lives through uh, career here. So that's common thread. We say we exist at the studio to provide the top creative talent in Detroit and elsewhere now um, with the environment where they can do their best work and lead a healthy, fulfilling lives. I love that. I love that not only are you maintaining it, but it started so many years ago with a founder. So this stuff really did exist. And he was a pioneer in that, which is great. Um, so you end up in this situation where, uh, you know, the worst of all possible circumstances, but you kind of recommitted yourself to staying on, turned into an opportunity with Tim's wife, Colleen, in order to take over the studio, which you did. So then then what happened? You, you get in there and say, okay, now, now I'm in a different position. I got sort of what I asked for um, in terms <laughs> of owning and controlling. What happened with the business? Yeah, it's the old careful, be careful what you wish for, right, Paul? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we had, uh, it was fourth quarter of 18 is when I took over ownership. And we ended up having a good year in 2018 from a financial perspective, you know, managing through all of that tragedy and transition. Uh, I felt really confident in doing that. And we had a financially successful year, got a couple large accounts that we did significant and meaningful work with. And you know, I, I remember the end of 18 as new owner, I really wanted to make an impression with uh, our team about how things were going to be going forward and my priority for, for what it's like both culturally and, and, you know, professionally at the studio. So we celebrated the end of the year with a 12 days of Skidmore and every day we did this activity or every day we had a, a, a celebration where 
I came in either the night before or earlier in the morning and hid the stuffed animal that we had as a, as a mascot, basically in the studio. It's kind of our, our elf on the shelf for, for that season. And he had a note every morning and every morning the studio would come in, look for him, find him, whoever got there first. And that note would have the day's thing, either a gift for the studio or an activity we were going to do together. And it was a way for us to really turn the, completely turn the corner on the old studio, which was Tim's and which was a wonderful thing to the new studio that was mine and was going in a, you know, similar, but slightly adjusted direction. And it was a wonderful end of the year. People still talk about it. Um, I was really proud of just how we, how we came together and how that, and how we were able to celebrate at the end of a really, really challenging year. And then in January, I'm thinking 2019, this is going to be great. Life's easy. I'm going to, I'm just going to sit back and watch the team grow and be happy and collect checks and all's good (laughs) in January. uh, I ended up going on a trip to Kenya, which was client related, strangely enough. But while I'm there, I got news that uh, one of our larger clients was was really pulling back on all of their all of their work with us. And then I get back and a week later, uh, I got noticed that another one of our clients had hired a new CMO who was bringing in their own outside help. And we were really getting phased out. And then about a week later, I got noticed that our third largest client had, we finished the project we were working on and they basically let us know that they were going to do everything else in-house. Thanks for your help. You've set it up, set us up for success. And where we expected to do a significant amount of work going forward, they were out. So in the span of three weeks in January 19, I lost about 70% of our revenue. And mm-hmm. yeah, that, that, that really changed the, the outlook of 2019. It's four months into my tenure as owner. Wow. Did that have anything to do with the transition over to you? Or was that really just about timing? I've I've thought about that and looked at it. And I really do think it's more about timing than anything else. Each one of those scenarios is is not unusual in our world. You know, typical agency tenure, and we don't like to call ourselves an agency like you mentioned, but that's the world we're in, you know, is two to three years. And two of those clients we had worked with for that period of time, another common transition point is when you bring in new leadership on the marketing side. So it just hit where it was three of them all at once. And they happened to be our three largest clients. And yeah, maybe there was some element of those three clients having concerns or doubt about new leadership at the studio. But I, you know, in two of those cases, I I don't believe that to be the case at all because we're, we started working with two of them again a year later. And the third one, you know, I had held a personal relationship with the leader as opposed to, to Tim. So I, I really don't think it was the transition. I just think it was bad timing uh, all at once. Yeah. Well, that's just business, right? And you went through that period and uh, worked through it head down. Things were looking up and then the pandemic hits and like all of us were were impacted in a way where uh, we all had to slow down and change the way we look at things. But that sense of an entrepreneurial spirit really kicked in with you and your team early on. I remember you being kind of a, the poster boy for resilience in, in the small giants community as we were telling stories about how people were getting through this. And you end up starting a brand new company, Michigan Fields, 
tell us how that came about. Yeah. Like you said, we, 2019 was really tough, but we took 12 months to transition and coming into 2020, we felt really good. And the, our, our new business effort, we totally revamped, started winning some work at the studio. And we were looking at February and March as, as uh, from a win perspective, being our best months we'd had in two years. And then middle of March, pandemic hits. And all of those new contracts, as long with along with many of our existing clients, just said, as expected, uh, well, we're on hold. We're, we're not sure what we're going to be doing, when we're going to be doing it. And yeah, as the owner who had just gone through a, the previous year of rebuilding, um, you know, our client roster and our revenue stream and base of work, and then to have it go away again overnight was a, was a little frustrating, Paul, <laughs> to tell you the <laughs> truth. So I just, I mean, like I'm sure many others uh, in the in the community, in the business community and ownership seat said, I can't sit still and wait to see how this shakes out. So I'm going to do something. I had been fortunate enough to go through the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program, where through that program, you create a business plan for a growth opportunity for your business. And I wrote a plan, thankfully, for a food delivery business. And so when the pandemic came about, thought, huh, I've got this plan sitting on the shelf, didn't have any intention of launching it, but uh, now seems like a pretty appropriate time to launch a food delivery business. So I met with my team at Skidmore and said, how quickly could we get this up and going? We had already toyed around a little bit with some brand and identity work for it because that's a fun thing for us to do. So we had done that in the previous year, but no intention of launching it, uh, nothing beyond beyond some concepts. And uh, I met with the team, said, how quickly could we launch a brand and a site and an experience that we could live with? Not what we want to do, not what we would do for a client because that would take six months, but uh, something that we could live with. And they told me two to three weeks. I said, wow, mm. go do it. Start today. So we just put our resources at the studio, our team, to work on building a brand that we were going to launch. And I went to work on reaching out to my network of food and beverage providers, manufacturers, distributors, growers, to see what we could get source-wise. And the idea behind Michigan Fields was all local, all healthy, nutrient-dense, food that you know where it's coming from and we could tell people where it's coming from exactly. And thankfully, because we were narrowly positioned in, in the studio and what we did and uh, my, you know, nonprofit work is pretty narrowly positioned in food access and uh, food education and entrepreneurship, uh, had the connections to get this thing up and running quickly. And sure enough, two and a half weeks later, we launched a site that was online uh, retail for local food called Michigan Fields, michiganfields.com. And three, four days after that, we were delivering to people's homes. Mm. And you got a van? I mean, just, I mean, how did you do it? You had to get it to their <laughs> home. <laughs> yeah, we uh, borrowed, rented, rented mm. uh, a couple vans to start for the first two weeks. I immediately ordered vans that would be refrigerated so we could keep proper temperature control once it started getting warmer. You know, this is back in the beginning of April. So 
temperature control wasn't as big a concern or as difficult. But yeah, rented vans for the first few weeks and then purchased two vehicles to keep us running, uh, set up the suppliers. I had a warehouse partner that um, already was running a food operation and had licensed food production facility that we could operate out of, just carved out a little corner of the building. So we were able to source, receive, store, and then pick and pack orders. And we really just figured out how to do it as we went. It wasn't much more to it than that. It was just that spirit of, you know, we got to do something. We're going to figure it out. Uh, we're going to bring some people in to con- to give us some advice and, and we're going to make it happen. And we know we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way and we'll make corrections and keep going. So it was it was a super fun time, really stressful. I think I was, you know, working around the clock for, for weeks just to get it up and running and, you know, everything from, oh, we need a dairy supplier. Who do, who do we go to? And setting up those meetings to, you know, working on the back end of a, of a website, entering, writing and entering copy for a product description. It's like anything and everything in between. And then logistically figuring out on the technology and software side, how do we plan a route when if we've got 50 deliveries that we're supposed to have in a day and two vans and these stretch 30 miles, you know, how do we get them all there in a reasonable amount of time? And uh, yeah, we were able to figure all that out fairly quickly and, and get it up and going and it's still going today. That's such a great story, how you were able to do that so quickly during a really rough time. I know that the studio now is is thriving and doing well and, and growing again. I want to take you back a little bit, Drew, because I want to know where this sensibility came from. Because even in those discussions with Tim, you were ready to leave because you wanted to do something on your own. You wanted to have control. So you did have that entrepreneurial bent, but where did it all come from? I mean, just back to even your childhood years growing up, influences you might have from your folks or early jobs. Mm -hmm. My father, uh, when I was young, had gone from a corporate job, fairly corporate, small business leadership position to leaving that to open his own retail store, actually a computer store in the 80s. And I certainly didn't think about it consciously at the time because I was a kid. I was you know, probably from age seven to 10 or so is when he had that store. But I saw, I witnessed that entrepreneurial spirit and saw that there was something that you could do. You could take a path in that direction. And it was real. It's funny. It didn't work out for whatever reason. And he went back to working for steel company where he ended up being the president there. But uh, for that moment in time, I saw I saw an entrepreneurial spirit uh, in my father and it was never talked about. Uh, we just we didn't really have that that kind of relationship then. But I think witnessing it had left some impression on me. I thought it was fun to go to the store. It was a fun mm-hmm. place for me to go as a kid and play around, even though it was just computer equipment and you know it wasn't a glamorous retail store. It was in a strip mall next to a cake shop and something else. But so I probably wanted to spend more time in the cake shop than I did the computer store. But it was just, it, it seemed like a, a real thing. You know, you're doing something on the ground, not just sitting in an office building. So I think that had an influence for sure. And then I started my career in public accounting. Uh, I was a, a CPA with EY in the Detroit office, and I got the full 
you know, great cubicle experience and just really quickly realized it wasn't for me. And most importantly, on the career path side, I mean, I left that public accounting job to go start the material handling business with one other guy working from home, traveling around the country, designing and installing uh, equipment layouts that would help help people uh, make better use of their space companies. And that to me just felt more appropriate for work. It wasn't, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know what problem was going to pop up to solve. And that was exciting to me. And and the the partner at EY, when I told him I was leaving, and I was on the partner track there right early in my career, but that was definitely the path of high performer. And partner pulled me aside and said, what are you doing? What, do you understand what you're giving up here? And I said, what do you mean? And he talked about the country club memberships and the travel <laughs> and the pay and the, and the bonuses. And you retire at 58 with pension and you know all of these monetary and financial benefits to being a partner uh, at a big four accounting firm. And I said to him, yeah, but I know exactly what I'm going to be doing between now and 58. And that would drive me nuts. So it was just about the unknown. You know, I'd, I tell you what, I would have been vastly more financially successful by this point had I stuck with the public accounting track but it wouldn't have been fulfilling at all. And I, I just can't imagine being happy in that environment where I knew exactly, you know, in year three, I'm going to be this. In year six, I'm going to be this. And it was just that path laid out. And, and for whatever reason, I, I individually uh, appreciate the, the unknown. Let's take a quick break. As a leader, I value responsiveness. In fact, it's one of the values of the Small Giants community. When it comes to email, crowded and disorganized inboxes can get in the way of being responsive to the people who matter most. I was so happy to learn that the team at Basecamp, a 2017 Forbes Small Giants Award winner, has transformed email with their new product called Hey. Hey gives you back control of your inbox with features you never knew you needed but you won't want to live without. The first time you receive an email from someone, you get to decide exactly what to do with it. You can add it to your inbox full of all the important stuff, your feed for casual reads, or your paper trail for receipts and other transactions. Or you can decide not to receive emails from that person. There's a handy reply later feature, so you never miss getting back to someone, even if you can't tackle it right that second. Hey also makes it easy to edit email thread subject lines into something helpful so you don't have to sift through long message threads that have evolved light years away from the original subject. Hey blocks spyware, makes attachments easy to find, and lets you send large files. Visit hey.com now to start a 14-day trial. That's H-E-Y.com for a 14-day free trial. And now back to the podcast. Seems like you've had courage multiple times in your career to to make that jump, and even have that partner tell you, "Wow, you've got a great opportunity here." You you knew that, you realized that, but you also uh, were adept enough to realize that that wasn't for you. <laughs> but he was actually more like, "You're a fool. What are you right. doing?" I don't right. think he was encouraging me at all. On the, yeah, on the other side, but I was excited about it, so I just said, ah, "Hell with it. I'm going." That's where the courage comes from. Um, can you think of maybe an unexpected learning from an unexpected source along the way? 
so many, right? Um, unexpected learning from an unexpected source. Yeah, I say uh, learning from customers, people will talk about, I, I can say in my first in my material handling experience, our largest customer ended up being uh, the Penske Automotive Group. And we did a lot of work with their dealership network around the country when they were opening new locations or renovating locations. We would um, design and install the equipment for their parts and service departments. And this company still exists. My partner that I was working with back then is still in that world and, um, and loving it. But my learning from that experience was in the customer service area, you just have to do whatever it takes to make a customer happy. And your perspective on the situation really isn't the most important one. And it doesn't mean that you allow people to be abusive or take advantage of you. But you know, in the end, it's theirs and they own it and you make it what they want, not what you envisioned it to be. And that's carried forward into Skidmore. You know, our core purpose is very intentionally worded now to help good organizations and good people be their best with their being the operative word and that we don't get to define for our clients what their best is. They get to define it and we get to help them get there. But you know, I saw in oftentimes in the old world of material handling and in the Skidmore world where we would get myself and then the teams would get really frustrated with not being able to bring their own vision fully to life. And I had to learn from that, from both that when you're in a service-based business and uh, whether you're making a product or providing a service, I think all of them are service to a certain extent. We all need customers, right? It isn't about bringing your vision to life. Those are the the pure innovator companies that are pretty few and far between. Uh, but in the in the service world, it really is about embracing their ownership of their vision and your role as the facilitator of bringing it to life. Uh, and that, that was something that the Penske organization was very clear in their vision, so helped me understand that. And they were also very um, adamant about their vision coming to life. So I just kind of had to accept it. Uh, or else we wouldn't be working with them. But I think that's something I've carried forward to the Skidmore team. It's been healthy because in the creative world, it can be really, really frustrating if that's not talked about and open and discussed and you figure out a way to to uh, accept it and, and do your best within that. And so you mm-hmm. kind of have that learning with the creative teams. And I've said it to our team, continue to, you know, we aren't fine artists. On, if you want to be a fine artist, and create your artwork for the world, you can do that. You just can't do it here. We are commercial artists, which means we're creating on behalf of someone else's benefit. And there's a slightly different take and perspective we have to have on our work because of that. Yeah, that's a really unique way to look at it. I I notice even on your website, the, the word agency is crossed out. And yet you say, well, yeah, we're in that world. And and whether it's the agency world or whatever business we're in, we're, we're always commoditized eventually, There's or, or we feel like we are. So how does a purposeful business like yours truly differentiate in this marketplace so people can understand what Skidmore's really about? And, and not even as much as what you are, but what you're not. Mm-hmm. In our world, it's always, everybody says, we do the best creative work and we have the best people mm-hmm. and we have the best process. And so, yeah, so does everyone else, if you ask them. And that we, we had to fight through that for years to get to a place where we are now, which we have fully embraced our differentiator as narrow expertise. So it's, it is truly letting go of 98% of the market. 
and saying, we're not right for you. And we're going to put ourselves out into the world in a way that uh, we're, we're narrowly positioned. And every, every day we're working on increasing our expertise in a narrow area. So for us, we say we work and guide, we work with and guide emerging food and fun CPG brands to grow through brand activation, brand building and activation. So I don't know of any other firms in our space who focus on exactly the same thing, right? Agencies. There's lots of food and bev agencies. There's lots of CPG agencies. There's lots of branding agencies. But the combination of emerging food and bev, CPG, and focusing on brand. We don't do marketing. We don't do media planning. We don't do uh, a lot of the ancillary services that agencies will will say they do when they when they claim that they're full service. Like, no, we're narrow in the industry. We're narrow in the discipline, um, and we're narrow in the size and type of company we work with. So it's a combination of all of those things, and and that's what we believe makes our position in the market uh, differentiated. And obviously, I also believe we do the best work and have the best people and the best process or are working towards all three of those things. But it's just everyone's going to say that. So I don't think it resonates with the prospect. And it's not enough just to say, yeah, uh, everybody says that, but we really do it. You, you do have to make these choices to differentiate. And I love the way you describe that by saying we're actually not full service uh, we're going to be very specific about what we do, uh, who we do it for, uh, and uh, and that's the way you set yourselves apart. And obviously, then deliver delivering on that. Yeah, and in the creative world, it's so hard for a creative team to embrace that because, by nature of being creatives, you want you want variety in what you do. You want to solve the next new problem because that's fun and exciting. Uh, so it it took a lot of work for us collectively to go down this path together as a studio to say, we're going to cut out 98% of the problems in the marketplace and really just focus narrowly here. But thankfully, what we found, what I, what I had said would be true, really hoping, fingers crossed, that the narrower we are, the more fun it'll be because the better we get at solving problems and the more complicated of a problem we can get to because of our depth of knowledge and expertise. And that has proven to be true. So I'm thankful that that's the case, but say to creative firms out there, the fear of not being able to be creative because you're in such a narrow space, that's it's fear. It's not true. (laughs) Uh, You have been put in, in positions uh, of leadership uh, where all of a sudden you were now the the owner of Skidmore, you went to your team at some point during COVID and said, what do you think about starting this new business? You're setting your sights and your standards very high in terms of service delivery. What would be a very humbling, tough decision you've had to make during this time? Uh, letting go of people is always the hardest thing, I think. Uh, when our, I uh, say, this goes back pre-COVID, but when we lost those three clients, uh, we were a team of 16 and you know, 70% of our revenue went away. And I, I made a mistake. We kept our entire staff on for 10, eight months, nine months uh, beyond and did everything we could to, to 
get back to the place where we were cash flow positive and profitable. And ultimately, you know, we, we didn't get there fast enough and I had to let four people go. Had I made that decision faster, it may have been fewer people. The company would definitely have been healthier in the long term. And yeah, we would have been better off. Those people likely would have been better off. We might have been able to do it in a different way. So pride, ego, just, uh, you know, and confidence. Like I can get through this. I can do Mm -hmm. this. I think I learned in that, in that sense, uh, you got to face reality and face it quickly. And, you know, there's an element of, I I just didn't want to hurt people. I didn't want to, you know, put them through that scenario where they had to find new work, but it's part of, it's part of life. And I, and I realized that that, that time we have really talented, really great, highly employable people across the board. All of the people that I had to let go of had new work in new places that they enjoyed and was, and had fulfilling opportunities to pursue immediately. So that's something I took away from that experience is do what's right for the business and let go of your ego um, in that decision-making as much as possible. Well, it's really compassion that drove that activity or lack of activity for a while. You said, you know, I made a mistake. I waited too long. You know, we talk about how hard it is to, to move people out of the organization where we procrastinate. But a lot of that procrastination happens when we have people that actually don't belong and we should be getting rid of them, and we don't, and procrastinate there. You you came from a position of love and compassion. And maybe there's ego there or challenge to say, hey, we can get through this, and I can do it without having to let these people go. Um, and ultimately, you did it and did it the right way, and everybody, like you said, landed fine, and you were able to get through that time. As you think about it, Drew, today, is there an area of leadership that you feel like you still are working on for yourself? Mm-hmm. Many, Paul. How much? How much more time do we have? <laughs> uh, number one, and we're we're having a lot of conversations around this now, so it is top of mind. Is around accountability, and not from my personality is high level of responsibility and holding myself accountable to the things I say I'm going to do and the actions I say I'm going to take. But organizationally, I've struggled as a leader to implement accountability across the board. So we're working on that. And, and it's, a, it's a very serious endeavor for us right now. Um, in, in the kind of place that we are, I think we can oftentimes, and I oftentimes, will hide behind that place of compassion and purpose and allow that to be an excuse not to hold everyone accountable to, to the uh, you know, roles and responsibilities and results that we've all agreed we're going to reach. So yeah, it's really around accountability right now for me. It's something that people think about when they think about culture and culture-focused businesses or purpose or values-driven business that uh, we're just going to run a loose family-run type of organization where people can kind of do what they want. But it's really not true. It's not meant to be that way. And while we can run our companies with compassion and collaboration and team focus, that doesn't mean uh, we don't need the kind of process and accountability that any business needs to grow. And it's just simply a balance. So what you're going through now is to, one, admit it, 
like you said, we've always said, you know, that's half of it and then work on it, work on it with your team. And that that's something that even personally you're working on, then that's going to transition to the team as well. And you'll, you'll build that accountability into the organization and the organization will be better for it. And that allows you to then take that success, invest it back in those people and do it as a compassionate purpose driven leader. So I have no mm-hmm. doubt that like all of the challenges that you've addressed over the years, uh, you're going to tackle that one as well. Yeah. Kind of, kind of last question for you, uh, Drew is, um, you've been through a lot and there's so much more ahead. I know for you, what would you say to a younger person that's, that's starting out in business? What kind of advice would you give them? First thing that comes to mind is roll with it. Whatever path you think you have in front of you is almost certainly not going to be the path that you end up going down, at least wholly. Probably going to be cutting some new paths and venturing off for a while and coming back. And yeah, I, I was talking to, I have a 16, soon to be 17 year old nephew who was talking about entrepreneurship as a potential career path you want. And I was like, oh, it's great. We get to talk with something to talk about <laughs> other than sports, which we talk about already. But yeah, I was explaining to him that it sounds glorious, right? It sounds like a glamorous endeavor. And if that's what you're looking for, do something else. Because it's fulfilling for sure if that's the kind of fulfillment uh, or, or the kind of environment that would give you fulfillment is one where you're going to be on a roller coaster day in and day out about things that are going great, things that are going awful and you know problems that everyone else has and that you have to you know bear bear some responsibility for and or some burden of because that's just the role as the leader, right? Um, so have thick skin, roll with it, keep going, be persistent. And if you don't want that roller coaster, don't want to figure out how to live within that roller coaster in a healthy way, then there are plenty of other paths where you don't have to figure that out and you can take one of those and there's nothing wrong with it. But here you're, you're going to get bounced bounced around, and it's part of the fun of it. So uh, hopefully you like getting beat up a little bit, and then bouncing back and showing the world that you can still stand and, and fight another day. Well, you can tell your nephew that he can always go into public accounting and work for E and Y and go the more traditional route, which is a perfectly reasonable route for those that want want to do it. But uh, the most important thing that you said really is that you just whatever we think we we are going to want to do, we're, it's not going to happen the way we plan. And uh, to be able to to roll with it as as things come our way, uh, I think is something you've shown to be excellent at, and is great advice for for uh, other people that are looking to this approach to life or business uh, and and their own careers. So let me end with these uh, five quick hit questions, kind of like the association game, whatever comes to your mind first. Can you name a leader that you look up to? Rob Dubay. Ah, great example. (laughs) Great example. uh, Fellow small giant. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Uh, oh, the, the, um, Patagonia one, I forget the title of it. Patagonia founders book. Yes. Yeah. Yvonne Chouinard. Um, I'll think of it. Yep. That's a good one. What's your all time favorite movie? Hmm. I'm bad with favorites, Paul. Uh, favorite movie. Don't have one. How about a TV series you like to binge watch? I just, I just binged Breaking Bad. Uh, I'd never watched it when it was originally out, and it was 
it was an awesome show. Loved it. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's a really good yeah. one. And lastly, what's something about you people don't know? Hmm. Uh, I'm a scuba diver. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I did that many, many years ago. I would have to learn from scratch to do it again. But uh, that's a great, a great sport. Well, uh, it's so, so great to hear your story. And I learned new things about you today, Drew, that I didn't know before. I want to reflect on a few of the things that you said. How, how you were able to take this on, I, I can just picture you having this conversation with Tim, where you came to terms with the fact that you were leaving. And then all of a sudden, he uh, unfortunately passes away. And it sounds like uh, you had a great relationship, not only with him, but his wife, Colleen, and were able to stay on, be committed to running the agency and not knowing what would happen and then get the opportunity to to buy it, to grow it, and you lose 70% of your business. And guess what? Then you just put your head down and work hard and it kind of comes back. And then COVID comes. I mean, it's just been a roller coaster that I think many people would identify with no matter what business that they're in. But each time it, you just seem to say, okay, um, I'm going to roll with it. What do we have here? What do I have to do to survive and thrive? And it also seems to me that you've always been very inclusive of your team and not done it for them or to them, but with them so that you never felt like you had to have all the answers. You really um, did it with the people on the team. I loved how in the middle of COVID, you started Michigan Fields just by dusting off that business plan literally started a business in, in two to three weeks and they had this attitude that says, hey, we got to do something. We're just going to figure it out. And I think that's the way people have to think because if we try to figure it all out or we over-engineer, that means that in many times we're not going to get anything done at all. Um, you've got a lot of this spirit from uh, your dad, at least for a time, uh, jumping out of the more traditional career into into retail. And again, you had you were in public accounting, and so that is a, a more traditional career. But realized early on that that wasn't really for you. You took the jump, and I, I love how you said that the unknown is okay, and it can be really challenging, but it's really fulfilling. And I think that's what's most important to you. Yes, you want to make money, you want to grow your career, but it seems to me that being fulfilled, having purpose is really important to you. Uh, and also, you have a great loyalty. I mean, Skidmore has been around for almost 60 years. That culture that started from the beginning, there's a legacy there that is important for you to continue. And, and I love your your loyalty to that idea um, and that you had the opportunity to, to really be a big part of that. I think what's also important for people to understand in terms of how we run our businesses, how we mark them, how we differentiate that the idea of being full service is not always the right answer. You have greatly narrowed your scope and you're open about that. Say, here's what we do well, and we've realized what we do well. We realize what's going to challenge us to solve the problems, what we enjoy, what we can have fun doing. And I think that level of focus serves your team well and serves your customers well. And so no doubt that the business continues to grow. I think you're also fair to yourself and realize that there's our growth as leaders never ends. We're always learning and building this accountability, this sense of organization is something that you need to work on. You're trying to instill in your team as well and is only going to make the company better. And lastly, the idea that people should realize that shit happens right in our lives, in our businesses, and you have to be able to roll with it. You have to be able to 
uh, take it, understand it, use those core values that we have, use that sense of purpose to make the best decisions we can. They're not always going to be right, but in the long run, you're going to see that you're going to build a really uh, great business and a fulfilling life because of it. So thank you, Drew, for sharing your stories with us. I know there's so much that uh, people will learn listening from this. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast with me today. Yeah, thanks, Bob. The Small Giants community and you have been incredibly valuable to me over the years. I feel like it's very fortunate to find you when I did. So keep up the great work and thanks for having me on. Thank you. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at smallgiantsbuzz. Until next time, 